Hello, I'm Daniel Barnett. Dress codes can be a useful tool for employers, but some dress codes can have employees alleging discrimination. In this episode of Employment Law Matters, I'll discuss the legal consequences that can flow from having a dress code for your staff. Just before I do, a quick shout out and thank you to AJ London, who left a review on Apple Podcasts saying, As an in-house employment lawyer advising HR professionals, Daniel's podcast is invaluable in helping me to translate topical, complex and timely employment issues that will affect every organisation. Thank you so much, AJ London. That's really kind of you. And we're going to pop a copy of my book, Employee Investigations, in the post to you if you email podcast at employerservices.co.uk and tell us your real name and postal address. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. A dress code can be directly discriminatory if it amounts to a detriment and it treats a particular group less favourably. A requirement for women to wear high heels is directly discriminatory. High heels are uncomfortable, they can cause health issues, that's the detriment, and only women are required to wear them, so that's on grounds of a protected characteristic. A policy can be indirectly discriminatory if it's applied to everyone but impacts negatively on a particular group with a protected characteristic and can't be justified. So a dress code which forbids hair coverings might be indirectly discriminatory against Muslims who wear headscarves in public unless you as the employer can justify it. As in other areas, and apart from steering clear of anything that could trigger a sex discrimination claim, your dress code must allow for reasonable adjustments for disabled people. And, arguably most important, should not include anything that could leave you open to religious discrimination claims. I'm going to focus for just a moment on sex discrimination. In 2016, agency worker Nicola Thorpe was sent home from work for wearing flat shoes. Her employer's grooming policy required female employees to wear shoes with a two to four inch heel. Miss Thorpe was sent home without pay when she refused to go out and buy a pair of heels. She didn't bring a tribunal claim, but she did take action. She set up a petition calling for high heels policies at work to be made illegal, and she got over 150,000 signatures. The publicity triggered a joint inquiry by two parliamentary committees. After all, if there's a bandwagon, why not jump on it? The two parliamentary committees produced a report which prompted the government's guidance, dress codes and sex discrimination, what you need to know. Now, the guidance doesn't actually say much. It doesn't deal with many of the issues specifically mentioned in the report. But it does highlight the areas where issues might arise. Here's what the government guidance, dress codes and sex discrimination, what you need to know, says. It says standards of dress between men and women must be equivalent but need not be identical. It's best to avoid gender-specific requirements such as high heels. It says a requirement to wear makeup or skirts or manicured nails is likely to be unlawful. And it says a requirement to dress smartly is fine if the definition of smart is reasonable. This is where 
I think the government guidance has fallen short. I think they should say high heels are a clear no-no. In my view, a requirement to wear high heels is a detriment and it's less favourable treatment as the rule doesn't apply to men. I think the government guidance should say a requirement for women to wear makeup is almost certainly directly discriminatory. A reasonable employee who chooses to wear makeup might still feel disadvantaged if she were told it was obligatory rather than a choice. She might feel more strongly if given a list of essential items and a colour palette, as in the Thorpe case. The same logic applies to a requirement for women to wear a skirt or to have manicured nails. I think the government guidance should have said asking female employees to wear revealing clothes or low tops or undone buttons or transparent items, including, for example, sheer tights, are obviously out. I think the government guidance should have reminded you to be cautious if your dress code has different requirements for men and women. They don't have to be the same. They should be of a similar standard. If men must wear a suit or a shirt or a tie, make sure women are expected to wear equivalent smart business wear. For example, suits, formal dresses or a smart blouse with a skirt or trousers might be equivalent. But if women can wear more casual clothing, this could be a detriment and less favourable treatment for men. So that's sex discrimination. Let's have a think about religious discrimination. One of the highest profile discrimination cases of recent years, called Iweda and the United Kingdom, pivoted around the intersection of employer dress codes and the freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs. Both Mrs. Iweda and in another case Mrs. Chaplin had argued that they had a right to wear a crucifix while at work wearing uniforms. But only Mrs. Aweeda was successful against her employer, British Airways. The European Court of Human Rights dismissed Mrs. Chaplin's claim against the Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust because they'd imposed a blanket ban on jewellery on health and safety grounds. And it was held that didn't place Christians at a particular disadvantage. It was also said that health and safety can be fairly easily defined and defended as a reason to justify a particular dress code. After all, none of us would want to turn up at accident and emergency to find the frontline staff wearing their own hoodies. Restrictions on dress codes when it comes to machine operatives are also generally simple to justify, because keeping clothes out of moving parts is just common sense. Now, although they're not quite dress code issues, or maybe they are, I thought I'd have a quick word about tattoos, because they're often the source of workplace friction, even though one in four of us now sports some ink. And there's certainly no shortage of anecdotal evidence that tattoos are unpopular. Research from 2013 found that a significant majority of employers automatically ruled out job applicants with tattoos for fear of a negative impact on their clients and their corporate image. If you work for the Metropolitan Police, for example, you can't have tattoos on your face, 
your hands or above your collar line or have any tattoos that are discriminatory, violent or intimidating. And many airlines have a prohibition on any tattoos at all. Now, this wholesale banning might be because businesses have realised that unless a tattoo, or indeed a piercing, has a specific religious function, it's not covered by any area of discrimination law. Here are my top five tips for dress codes. One, consider what is genuinely necessary for job requirements and or health and safety requirements. Two, Consult employees to get their views and, if you can, agreement. Three, don't impose different standards on different groups without a good, non-discriminatory reason. Four, consider whether your policy treats male and female employees comparably. And five, consider how any dress code might impact employees with a disability or with particular religious beliefs. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, and we'll pick one person every week, read out their review, and send them a copy of my book, Employee Investigations. Now, if you want to know more about employment law generally and you're an employer or a lawyer, have a think about joining the HR Inner Circle, www.hrinnercircle.co.uk. We've just posted out our monthly magazine for November and it's got some great articles in it. One on the discrimination, burden of proof, who has to prove what. Sounds really dull, but it's actually really interesting. We've got something on social media and workplace harassment. There's a big article on what IR35 means to the private sector. We've got an article on how much employees can get if they win Injury to Feelings Awards with some tips on how to minimise payments that might be made to them. There's an article on the art of non-work. I always answer Q&A questions. So in this month's magazine, the question is, we have an employee who's gone off sick with anxiety and depression. When does this become a disability for which we need to make reasonable adjustments? There's another question I answer. Could a settlement agreement stop an employee making a subject access request? If you want a copy of the magazine, just join up to the HR Inner Circle. We'll pop one in the post to you. www.hrinnercircle.co.uk and say that you heard about the HR Inner Circle on this podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.